Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. This year is the 40th birthday of the TV show that changed my life. Since playing Baldrick in Blackadder, I'm still routinely asked in the street if I've got a cunning plan. And that is why I've decided to lean into my catchphrase and pin it to my podcast. Blackadder was first broadcast on the 15th of June 1983. So I've decided to test myself to see if I can find out something I don't already know about the series with the guest I'm hoping will help me conduct a deep dive into the Blackadder back catalogue. John Lloyd, who was the producer of Blackadder. John went on to create Have I Got News For You and QI, but like me and other British acting legends like Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie and, of course, Ron Atkinson, it all started with Blackadder. I should add a health warning here. This episode is going to be quite a bit nerdy. So if you've never watched Blackadder uh, before you listen to the podcast, just have a quick look. Then again, if you've never watched it, you're probably too young to care anyway. With me, I've got uh, Melissa, my producer, wearing those big headphones as usual. Tony, I learned a fact I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. So firstly, hi. Hi, hi, hi. Hi, hi, hi. (laughs) Okay, so while I was researching this with you, Tony, I did not know this fact and I've learnt it you were not the original Baldrick tell me that's true well there's sort of two parts of that story Uh, I was uh, they couldn't find anybody to play Baldrick because it was a tiny tiny part in really a not very good pilot script and all their bright smart mates from Oxford and Cambridge uh, didn't want to do it so I was only offered the job about four days before they were due to start work on the pilot program so as you can imagine I knew immediately I wasn't the first choice but then we did the work on the pilot and then there was a strike at the BBC so we never recorded it and I wasn't available to do the pilot that was recorded and another actor played the part of Baldrick in the pilot so no I wasn't the original Baldrick at all. 
But you got the part in the show, what happened? Well, the producer rang me up and said, uh, hey, you'll be pleased to know that we've got a commission to do the Blackadder series. I said, oh, that's really great. I'm so pleased for you. Tell Rowan how pleased I am, won't you? Uh, and the producer said, well, we want you to play Baldrick. And I said... I don't understand. You got somebody else in to play Baldrick for the pilot, who by all accounts was very good. And he said, yeah, but don't you remember, I told you I would want you to play Baldrick in the series. And as soon as he said that, I did remember, but I thought it was the sort of old bollocks that producers always say when they just don't want to say no to you. So I thought it was just being nice. never occurred to me that they really would want me. What's really interesting, when you watch the first series again, which I watched a few years ago, it's a bit weird because you're smart mm. and Rowan is stupid and that, that obviously didn't quite work, mm -hmm. did it? I mean, the first series wasn't considered to be a great success. That's true. So when did you find Baldrick? Because Baldrick, the turnip head, Baldrick, who has the cunning plan, it's not really very cunning, let's be honest. But the okay. Baldrick we love. So what happened was, for the second series, they got in... Uh, ben Elton to write alongside Richard Curtis and Ben made two observations he said first of all I think the series is going to work if you see Blackadder in two locations his own home where he's feeling very secure and where he's the cleverest person there is uh, and that will only work if he's surrounded by two dunderheads because he uh, is actually a bit thick and then he goes into the court where he thinks he's going to be clever and is absolutely demolished by the Queen and her Chancellor. And that was the dynamic of the series. And in order for that to work, I had to be really stupid so that I could beef up uh, Blackadder's ego. And But that was the winning formula. It, it appeared to be, be the honest. winning formula, didn't it? Yeah. And it was so it was Ben who said to me, I want you to be really, really stupid. And I thought I'd plumbed the depths of stupidity in the second series. In fact, it wasn't until the fourth series that I became so paralyzingly maniacally stupid that I surprising I could even get out of bed in the morning but that's the one lots of people remember most they think it's you know considered to be the one isn't it the series series four I certainly do <laughs> while we're on Baldrick Tony I've got to just say so brilliant see Baldrick was back Thank How you. did it feel being Baldrick again? Richard Curtis is such a brilliant writer. He just remembered how to write Baldrick. All the rhythms, all the cadences and the gags were just absolutely right. So I just climbed aboard and went along for the ride. I was going to say, he knew how to write it and he knew how to be Baldrick again. He came back, didn't he? Just He was there. Yeah. I don't know what to say about that. It just happened. It was so great. Well, so for all those people out there who haven't watched it, you can go onto BBC iPlayer and you can look up Comic Relief. Baldrick's bedtime story, is it, Tony? That's right, yeah. And you can watch it. That would be nice. Smashed it. Can't wait to hear from your next guest. Looking forward to him. Could you just say, you know, mention a few programmes I've done, then people at least know I'm not the tennis player? So, Spitting Image... Yeah, not the 9 o'clock news, Spitting Image, Blackadder, QI, those are the e easy ones to remember. There's a few others, but, you know, I don't want to you know, go on and on about them. Well, that's, that's all right, isn't it? All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, John Lloyd. <laughs> I would quite happily do this entire podcast with you and not mention Blackadder once, because like, our relationship is based on that, but... There's a whole stream of things that, about you that I know very, very little, just kind of little glimmers. Shall we st start off with Blackadder and then wander away from it okay. and then at the end do a big 
black adult thing. <laughs> Will that work for you? Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. I remember a time you, me and Tim McInerney were going on a train up to somewhere, can't remember where, and you suddenly turned to me, and this is really, really in the early days of Black Adult, you turned to me and you said, what's it going like, to be like for you being famous? <laughs> and I kind of mumbled like you do in that sort of polite middle class way and didn't say much and you insisted you said no you you will be being Rowan Atkinson's servant is a calling card to fame and glory and we laughed and changed the subject although that did stick with me why were you so sure that things wonderful would happen so early on in the game well, first of all, I'm continually astonished. People say, and then you said this to me, and I never can remember these little pearls. Um, but I think if you look at some of the work I've done, people think that I'm a risk taker, but I never take risks. I'm very, very cautious. And so I only do things I'm 100% certain are going to be brilliant. So the first two years, basically nobody's speaking to me because it's obviously a complete disaster and it's not going to happen. And then, you know, 25 years later, people say, oh, you know, like Woody Allen, like the early, the early stuff, you know, the early funny stuff. And so, and that's true of all the things I've done, Spitting Image, not the Nine O'Clock News. I was so sure that they were going to, you get a kind of, um, it's almost sort of prescient. You get a vision of what, what it will become, which is often quite lonely because nobody really shares it with you. One or two people sometimes. You've always, you have always struck me as as quite a lonely person in, 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 in the work context. There's you prowling up one end of the room and everybody else nattering about what we're going to have for lunch in the other end of the room. Well, I, I'm a different person, Tony, to the one you knew then. I, mean, I was, you know, driven, uh, often gloomy, um, very determined, very ambitious. I'm not that person. I'm, uh, I'm happy in my skin. I'm not personally ambitious. I'm very grateful for what I have. I'm much less controlling than I was. I've learned you get the best out of people basically by hiring good people and let them, encouraging them to do whatever it is they do. And uh, I often say I wish that I had become a parent after I'd learned how to run a small company. <laughs> Quite interesting, Limited is the finest small company in the world, and it turns out great people. And it does it simply by finding people we like, who we think are capable, and then encouraging them. And that's not, as you know, the way Blackadder used to work. Is as you see me, me prowling around, getting very depressed, being the last person to leave the office, being very finickety about every single word, all that kind of stuff. So I'm slightly defined by what happened to me when my children, first two children, were very small. When I had this massive midlife crisis, and you know, I, I sort of kind of won all the prizes you could in my world, and. I had 10 BAFTAs, kind of ludicrous. 10 yeah. BAFTAs. More than anyone in the world except Dame Judi Dench, apparently. Yeah. Only because six of them were for advertising. Those BAFTA have only given one advertising awards ever in 1993, and it happened to be my year, and I won six BAFTA awards on the same night at the Royal Albert Hall. And by the fourth one, the whole Royal Albert Hall were booing, and that was the absolutely the apogee the climax of my career i had you know all these prizes the same year i won two lifetime awards one from bafta and one from the royal television society and two years later i was sitting under my desk crying thinking what's the point of anything so that's really you i can divide my life into these two halves 
which are which are which are very different. Let's go back to uh, the the first half of your life before yeah. before like Paul of Tarsus, your <laughs> eyes were opened. Um, you weren't there at the beginning of Blackadder, were you? No. What, what happened? How did you get tied into it? Well, what happened was. Not the nine o'clock news was very intense and very frightening, and we all were, you know, extremely living in each other's um, orbit the entire time. And uh, you know, at the end of it, we're all kind of exhausted. We again won a lot of prizes, and Rowan and uh, Richard went off, I think, to the south of France because Rowan's career ambition was he'd done his Monty Python. And now he was going to do his Forty Towers. That was the thing. His Monty Python was not the Nine O'clock yeah. News. His Forty Towers. He saw him. He modelled himself on, on John Cleese. And and it looks a good um, plan, except that I love Rowan to bits. He writes the best thank you letters of anyone I know. He's a miniaturist. Wonderful letters. But he's not a writer. That's the end of the thing. He's a performer. He's an interpreter. He's... And he insisted on being the co-writer with Richard Curtis, which I thought, well... You know, I'd been with him four years and not the nine o'clock news. He'd literally never written a word, you know. So I thought, this is not going to work, but what can you do? And and the, so they asked me if I'd do it. And I think the original <laughs> title for Blackadder was Prince Edmund and His Two Friends. And I thought, this is not working for me. This is Richard right up his sentimental alley. So I said no. They went off to write the thing. They... Uh, eventually made a pilot. I can't remember with who. They, Richard can't even remember who produced the pilot. Anyway, they sent the pilot. I watched it. I thought it had some very funny things in it. It basically became essentially episode two of the first series, um, Born to be King, I think it was called. Um, and anyway, so I was sitting at home wondering what to do, and a case of champagne and a dozen red roses arrived from the south of France saying, please, please come and produce this. And I thought, well, yeah, you can't resist, can you? If they like me that much, I'd have to have a go at it. So that's, that's how it began. But as often, I, I have this saying, beware auspicious beginnings. You know, it, it, you really want to be in a situation where things look pretty bleak, I think. And when it looks good, it's when it all starts to go wrong. And it looked wonderful. You know, you've got the superstar of the day, the, the wonderful writer and Richard Curtis, everybody's behind you because it's going to be a huge success. And, and then it wasn't, was it? You can remember the production. I think we all knew, even during the first week of rehearsals, that it wasn't quite right. But, of course, by that time, it's like any other industrial activity, isn't it? The, 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 the production line's going. You've cast the people. You've done the costumes. You've written the scripts. People know what it's going to be. You can't, can't just stop and start again, which I suspect is what you and Richard would like to have done. Let's be honest, you know, we were young and cocky. We'd won a couple of BAFTAs for Not the Nine O'Clock News. We thought we knew what we were doing. We didn't think we wanted an audience because we were too clever for an audience, you know, all that sort of ridiculous stuff, embarrassing. And as I remember it, we didn't rehearse at all because we filmed to start with, didn't we, up in Annick Castle in Northumberland in February. It was snowing. We hadn't rehearsed anything. We didn't know you had to rehearse film because when you're doing sketch shows, you go out and you shoot on the fly, you know, and you rehearse for the studio stuff. And I often tell this story about how on the very first day of filming, for some reason, the director had opted to shoot the very last scene of the sixth programme first. 
And Rowan's on this horse, shivering with cold in this skimpy costume, this ludicrous haircut, and there's a little bead of uh, mucus coming down from his nose. And he leans down off this massive horse and says, what voice shall I use? And I thought, oh, no, we've forgotten. We don't even know who this guy is. They don't ask that question at the National Theatre, do no. they? Not allowed no. So it, it's, you know, I, I often think if uh, nowadays um, you don't get a second series, you don't get a second show if it's no good. But in those days, the old BBC, look, you know, it's, yeah, it's sort of getting there. Um, it did win an Emmy, the first series, International Emmy. But it was then cancelled, as you remember, by Michael Grade because it was too expensive for the ratings. But they did eventually give us another go. So if most of the first series I've done, if it had just gone there, I wouldn't have a career, you know. When you talk about it, there is a kind of weight of gloom about the way you're talking. Did did you ever have a nice time during it? Um, The first series, really not. Um, it was it was a catalogue of disasters. Martin Chardlow, the director, was very new, but also quite a you know quite a sort of self certain person. And he hurt his back. And, and not only that, but he, he, he had directed lying on the floor. He had to lie on the floor in a little trolley. Do you remember? I do. And yeah. he would be wheeled around by a PA. <laughs> Uh, it's not the strongest. He was actually, let's be honest, nice guy, but out of his depth, especially with us, especially with, we were even more cocky than he was. So there was quite a lot of cock in the room. Yeah, you were terribly daunting. Uh, I, I, was I? I don't, well, I don't mean you as a collective. When oh, I, I see. Say yes. you, you as a collective, because you knew and had known the majority of the cast, presumably since you were all at university together. No, no, not really, because I was the sort of granddad, because um, Richard Curtis is like seven years younger than me, I suppose, something like that. And they're all Oxford, you know, um, Tim, McInerney, uh, Richard, Rowan, they're all contemporaries at Oxford, and a few other people who got small parts in Blackadder. So I was slightly uh, And you were the other one, you were Cambridge? Too. Yeah. Um, so how did you know them? Because there always seemed to be an enormous intimacy. Because of Not the Nine O'Clock News, because I was sacked by my best friend, Douglas Adams, from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, just as it was on its upswing. Um, We were co-writing it at the time. Why did he sack you? I wonder why, Tony. I wonder. Well, his his given reason was, well, it's not as funny when we're writing together. And I think what it was is, I'm not going to share this, it's my idea... I did get a bit stuck. Lloydie helped me out, but actually I don't need him anymore. And that is another pattern of my life, is helping people when they need me, and then when they don't need me, I get fired. So, And that's actually what's kept me sane and kept me working, because I've never got to the point where I believe my own myth, because just as I'm about to believe it, I get fired, and I have to start all over again. You'll be very lucky to make it through to the end of this podcast. You do know that. <laughs> Unless you've got to cheer up a bit, otherwise you're going to be out well, the no, door. Well, no, but it does. It comes back when I think of how hard it was producing, you know, Spitting Image. One season I worked 90 days shift with two days off in the middle. And that was like on three hours sleep a night. It was like insane. And one would be green with exhaustion and, and fear. Um, and, I, you know, it's amazing that one stuck through it, really. Let's jump right back then, because... What I'm getting is this kind of pretty gloomy, clear, uh, 
pretty gloomy, careful, <laughs> I'm not, not always arrogant, gloomy. Uh, depressed guy who's working in television. Where did all this come from? Well, you were from a services family, weren't you? Yeah. My dad was in the Navy for nearly 40 years, and we went all over, all over the world. Uh, I nearly joined the Navy. I was head of the Naval Section in the Cadet Corps at school. And my dad said, it's not really what it was, John. I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it anymore. So I sort of kicked around and thought I might become a lawyer. I was hopeless at that. Um, I was much too sentimental to be a lawyer. You know, I, I really care about justice and fairness. And uh, very few lawyers think like that. Um, Were you funny during your school days? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. We, we, we laughed a lot at home. Um, but the gloomy thing, obviously you can't be a comedy producer and just be gloomy. You remember, we laughed a lot in rehearsal. It was a you know flip-flop between the two things. I don't remember us laughing a lot. A lot. Oh, okay. What I remember is when we found the joke, we all went, yes! <laughs> and there was that, just like you're doing now, there's that, that kind of smile of, oh yeah, we found it. It's a, a real ease because what had been a problem was now resolved. And then within five seconds, boom, we'd go to the second half of the sentence that we'd been, been worrying about. Well, I would say um, the Navajo have a proverb, you know, everything easy is evil, everything good is difficult. Uh, and I think that's my life experience is that's right. As you know, a new comedy show is a complete tabula rasa. There's, n there's nothing there. Well, you say that, but often they're not, are they? Often they're very formulaic, and I think one of the things that distinguishes your work from almost anybody else's on the telly uh, in comedy over the last three or four decades is that virtually everything you do is an innovation. Everything you look at and think, oh, why didn't I think of that? Certainly I didn't, and nobody else did, but John and the team that he put around him did. Well, the thing is, uh, I sometimes um, uh, think that my skill is not being a primary creator. I, w I would have liked to have been a writer and, a, and an actor. Um, but I was headhunted. I was in the writer's room, age 22, and a bloke came in and said, do you want to be a producer? And I said, no, not at all. Why, why would I want to wear a tweed suit and bumble around? Yes, I think, you, I think you want to be a producer. So that's what I've done for the last... 50 years nearly. How did you get in the writer's room in the first place? Because I was already on the radio. I was in a show called Oh No It Isn't. It six, ran for six shows. It was a sketch show out of Cambridge. Um, Who else was in it? Anyone that we might uh, remember? Griff. Griff, Griff Reece Reece Jones. Jones. Yeah. John Cantor. Uh, yes, I know him. Uh, he writer, became a writer, didn't he? Lenny Henry's writer, brilliant novelist. Yeah. Still a great friend of mine. Um, no, so what... Uh, because I was so young as a producer... And you, in those days, you had complete responsibility. The producer was responsible for everything, you know, the legals, the budget, you know, there was, you were just left to, to get on with it. And so I started to get very successful quite young. And famous people would say, I'd like to work with you, you're very good. And I would defer to them thinking, well, I, this doesn't really work for me. And they go, I think I'm famous and very rich and you are nobody. Yes, you're nobody, I remember. And so I deferred to them, and I did two series that didn't work, and I thought, I'm not going to do they? that again. One was called Offbeat with Bert, uh, Braden, which is Bernie Braden, who was the precursor of Esther Ranson, really. Canadian. Yeah, he was huge, wasn't he? Huge. Very, very wonderful guy. 
But he was doing something that he used to, knew how to do, you know, 15 years before, and I wanted to do something fresh, and I thought it was a bit old-fashioned, to be honest. And so it proved it lasted one series. And the other thing was the great, late, uh, late great Barry Cryer, who became a very good friend. We did a thing called Reg Aykroyd's Silly Scandals. Jimmy Perry, co-writer of Dad's Army, wrote it with Barry. They were both in it. Um, it all looked great. But again, their sense of humour was from back then, and I, I'd say, guys, I don't think this is really funny. <laughs> I think we do know. I wrote Dad's Army, and Barry cries, you know, the Funniest comedy world, yeah, yeah. In, in the world. And so it was really good fun, but it just didn't, it didn't work. So I thought, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to only do what I like, which sounds arrogant, but actually it's the reverse of that. Because if you're doing something that you don't like, how can you possibly, it's patronising to think, why would anyone else like it if you don't? And that was what my first boss said to me. I said, what do you do as a producer? And he said, make something you like. What I like? Yeah, well, if you don't like it, why should anyone else? That's exactly why I'm doing these podcasts, by the way. Well, yeah, well, because it's right. You. That's how I pitched it. I said, yeah. I just want to do stuff that and, I like. And, of course, it, that's why it'll be great, because authenticity, you know, it's a perhaps an overused word, but that's the thing. People who do stuff well, it's authentically them. They're telling mm. their own story. It doesn't matter who it is. If you've ever seen Andrew Lloyd Webber, who's a friend, you know, think, okay, he's... He's super, yeah, yeah, he's a superstar. You watch him playing the piano at home when he's thinking of a new tune, you think that's the real thing. Mm. That whatever that guy's doing, he's channeling magic from some other place. And so two things for me is, first of all, my skill is I know what I like and I'm implacable about that. So I see an actor I like, I'm sure. No, nothing anyone can say, but they're not famous, they're no good. I don't like them. Same with pop music or food I just, I know what I like, and then I'm determined if I like somebody or somebody's writing, I will support them to the hilt until they uh, succeed. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and my special guest this week... Blackadder producer, John Lloyd. What was the first show on the radio that you did where you absolutely felt like that? 
this is my thing, I get it, I understand it, I think it's great, whatever anybody else might think? Well, the first um, thing that I made as a producer that was, as it were, my thing, was, um, it started with Nick Parsons, uh, the legendary um, Just a Minute guy. I used to produce Just a Minute, and we became matey. And he said, I've had this idea for a quiz about the tabloid newspapers, and it's called Keep Taking the Tabloids, and it's about the silly things that you read, you know, in those columns yeah. on the side of the sun or the mirror. And he had two school teachers from, I think, Highgate School, or some school in Hampstead anyway, who were going to do the research. And we made a pilot, a Giles Brandreth in it, I remember, I can't remember who else, Nick was the chair. And it was terrible. Yeah, it was very unfunny, and I took it to my boss, and he said, it's, it's really old-fashioned, and it's not work, doesn't work at all, but a quiz about the news is a very good idea. Why don't you go and have another go? So I sat down with a piece of paper, and I thought, well, it's a quiz about the news, well, let's call it the news quiz. And the other thing is, if it's about the news, it ought to have journalists in it, not people like, you know, Giles is still a very good friend of mine, but, you know, he's not a journalist. So we had... To my stuff, Richard Ingram's editor of Private Eye, Alan um, oh. Corrin, uh, editor of Punch and Times columnist, and um, Clive James, brilliant oh, wow. television critic. And uh, believe it or not, they were all delighted to work for it. They, wow, nobody ever asked them to do that. Well, not Clive, but the other two. And that is the best pilot I ever made um, until QI in 2003. It was just obvious. It was just so good. It was immediately... Barry Norman was the chair. Um, and that really took off like a rocket. And it's still here. What is that? It was 76 we started that. So Goodness that's me. very nearly 50, 50 years, years, isn't it? Yeah. And was it Hitchhiker soon after that? Well, I didn't think of Hitchhiker. That was Douglas's idea. He was my best friend and my flatmate and all that kind of thing. We tried to write things together and none of them had really worked. And he, he got this commission... And he did four eps, and then he ran out of steam. He was a very slow writer, and agonisingly, you think I'm lonely and gloomy? My God, his he had he really suffered for his art. So he got stuck, and he asked me to help him out halfway through the fifth one, and we knocked that off in about three weeks, and it it went on air, and it was immediately going to be a hit. You could see straight away, but that wasn't mine. I know, I know I've never claimed that it was. You seem to stay friends with Douglas. I've seen you in the same room chatting away. Yeah, it was never the same when you're sacked by your best friend. It, it broke my heart, actually. But, you know, I have great cause to be... It's. I look at, you look at... I'm sure you're the same. You look at your life, you think, actually, there's only really five or six times when you made a decision, when something happened to you. might not be your decision. When something happened where you, suddenly you, the train goes off on a different track, you know? Yeah. If Douglas hadn't sacked me, I'd still be, you know, his number two. You know, I'd still be the guy. Who's that guy? Is there a guy that Douglas does his typing? Yeah. Rather like, um, do you know uh, Rob Wilkins, who's Terry Pratchett's? Oh, I know answers. him very well, yes. Yeah. Rob's a friend of mine too, and, um, you know, basically nobody's heard of him. No. But without him, probably Terry would never have done all the things that he's done absolutely yeah. and you know Douglas and I wrote a book together after that we'd split up we uh, did this thing called the meaning of live 
Uh, it's a tiny little book, and it's a dictionary of things there ought to be words for but aren't, and all the words themselves. Do you know the book? I know it very well, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All the words themselves recycle place, place names, so kettering, the marks left on your bottom and thighs after sitting sunbathing in a wickwork chair, um, shoeberiness, the vague uncomfortable feeling from sitting on a seat still warm from somebody else's bottom... Uh, and on it goes. And it's a great little book. They're, they are the epitome of the gags that you write, which are still there in Blackadder, aren't they? Yeah, childish. Well, well, apart from childish, how would you describe the kind of jokes that you write, the kind of stuff that makes you laugh? I think it's... Um, I, I, I like high-low culture. I like, to, I like to flip between the very complex and the difficult and the strange and the very banal. I mean... At the end of the day, everybody goes to the loo, do you know what yeah. I mean? It doesn't matter whether you're Stalin or the Queen Mum. It, it, it's no getting away from it. And these are these are the core, you know, sex, death and food and all these things. That It's no good saying this is undergraduate humour. Undergraduate humour is the mainspring of a lot of things because undergraduates are smart people. Yes. <laughs> I can remember so many times when we were altering the script of Blackadder as we always did countless times. If ever there was a line that would start, Baldrick, you are as something, 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 as a something. Whenever you knew that challenge was up, that they were the moments where I think you were most happy. Yeah. And in fact, the smile on your face now is the happiest you've been during the whole of this podcast, <laughs> thinking about that area of... Well, uh, you're taking me back life. to my, you know, it's, it's pre-therapy, this. It's like, um, and yet it, it is, uh, when I think of those early days, it was very, very hard. I'm happy to talk about them because I, I think it's very important to say to people much younger than us is that if you want to do something good, it's going to be hard, uh, mm. and that's okay. And and if you find school hard or university hard, that's the way it is. You, if it's not hard, you're probably doing the wrong thing. And yeah, that, you I, know, I, like all of us, you know, the idea is there's a kind of myth that's taught at school and in the kind of celebrity social media culture that, you know, people like Rowan Atkinson and uh, Richard Curtis and you are, are born, not made, you know, they spring out of the, you know, womb fully formed like Zeus out of a, whatever Zeus sprang out of, or somebody came out of Zeus's head. Some swan or other. <laughs> Some swan, yeah. And, uh, but that's not the case. I mean, anybody who's a success is, uh, has blooming well earned it. Yeah, I always feel that about, uh, about, talent shows on on the television an awful lot of people who you see on those shows are absolutely amazing but what they haven't developed is those muscles of understanding that every time you go out there on stage or in front of the camera you've got to prepare yourself like you did the first time mm. it's just it's all about work it might be fun work but if you don't put the work in you're going to be found out and it, it saddens me that so many of those people burn out so quickly just because they've never been taught that it, well, it, it's something they all the many things they don't teach at school they should, which is what the way school is taught is everything's a solution. If you can just get this exam, everything's going to be fine. No, it isn't. Life is a continual process from cradle to grave. And you have to, you inspire me to think the other, last weekend I went to see a friend of mine who is a biotech entrepreneur who for some bizarre reason decided he wanted to learn to be a stand-up comic. He's, middle-aged person with grown-up kids. So I went down to this uh, pub in 
Kingston, where 10 people who'd never done stand-up before did their first five-minute set. I mean, incredibly brave. I've done that once. It's the most frightening thing I've ever done. Horrible, yeah. Very, very hard. And, of course, you know, three of them were really very promising indeed, really, really good. And the other seven, well done you, bloody great, well done. Uh, but it's that's not the end of. You want to do it, you've got to do that five minutes again and again and again, and then eventually you'll be doing an hour or two hours alone, forever. It's like it doesn't stop because you've got Latin O level, you know, which is the way school is taught, isn't it? If you've yeah. just got an A and A O level, then you don't. You can take the rest of your life off. No, no, not right. that's not right. You touched on this earlier on when you talked about your um, going into television. Uh, on not the nine o'clock news you were suddenly surrounded by incredibly talented paranoid perfectionists weren't you uh mel smith griff reese jones ben stevenson rowan how did you negotiate that? oh i didn't see that that wasn't at all how i saw it Go um, on. well in the first place i mean nobody was a success really i mean rowan was obviously had done great things on the stage and had done one television show that had been one off called Canned Laughter that had been quite well regarded. Pamela was, to be honest, a bit part actress in dramas and there'd been an ITV strike so she was out of work. Mel was really struggling as an assistant director at the Royal Court and absolutely hating it. Griff was a radio producer. He was the finest actor, theatre director and theatre designer of his generation at Cambridge. He could have easily been Peter Hall or Trevor Nunn rolled into one. And he was working as the radio producer for Top of the Form. You know, that school's quiz. Ding dong, ding, ding, ding dong, dong, ding yeah. dong. And he really didn't want to come and work for me on in television. So I've got a great job. I've got a solid job here. You know, he comes from hard-working Welsh family, you know, doctor and a nurse. And he he didn't want to lose the security. So... They were basically a bunch of deadbeats. Uh, and, you know, Rowan in those days was not the sophisticated smoothie who turns up on the red carpet, but a, a, a real nerd. I mean, a, you know, terrible stutter, as you remember. Yeah. Um, and we had this frightful lunch. Me and Sean, the other producer, took them out to this rather down-at-heel, moth-eaten French restaurant called the Balzac on Shepherd's Bush Green, which is the nearest thing they had to a restaurant apart from a kebab shop. So it's me, Sean, Rowan, the sort of, you know, uh, electronics nerd from uh, Geordie Lund, Mel, this bloke with this worst haircut in the universe, you know, overweight and quite very brilliant, but kind of like, what am I doing here? Chris Langham, you know, this kind of really dark, brooding presence, and Pamela, this delicious, I mean, unbelievable, luminous, like you wouldn't believe, so beautiful. And it was really the most awkward lunch. Nobody had anything to say to each other, and I thought, this is, this is a complete disaster. I've cast all the wrong people. Nobody's ever going to get on. But they did, actually. And to be honest, we did a reunion, you know, that thing Sue McGregor used to do on Radio 4 I remember that, about yeah. that. And they all said, we had such a lovely time. You and Sean suffered and came in in the morning with these great jokes, and we just did them, and then we went home. It was actually a very pleasant experience, especially after the first series. The second series, when Griff joined and Chris Langham left, it was really good fun. 
Still very hard, still like Blackadder, but it was a lot of laughs. Yes, I, I, clearly I, I misread the room, as it were, but I, I, they, they seemed, by the time maybe it was Series 2, Series 3, very tough and very wanting to protect their own territory in the show. Is that wrong? It, again, it's not the way I remember it. I mean, Mel, who, who I was very close to and spent a lot of time with socially, Mel's the most generous performer, you know. He's... Rowan would always want the best script, you know, and he was quite ruthless about getting that. And Mel go, fine, okay, I'll just be the stooge, you know. He was never any trouble, never, never, not at all. And Griff, or we used to call him the other one, you know, <laughs> the, the Billings, it was, you know, the funny one, the fat one, the girl, and the other one. <laughs> Griff, you know, did all the, he was a very good actor. He did what he was asked. Um, they, weren't, they weren't trouble at all, actually. I remember it. I mean, there were lots of other things that were difficult, but it wasn't that. What sort of things were difficult? Um, I think uh, probably me trying to get the best out of uh, the director. I think the directors probably thought I was a nightmare. Um, Bill Wilson had, was very difficult. He was a tough ex-Navy diver, special effects man on Dave Allen. Very tough guy, Glaswegian. But apparently he used to go home to his wife and cry at night because he was so, you know, belittled and bullied, as we would call it now. I think it was quite difficult. Um, Richard and I sometimes drew swords a bit. Um, but it mainly the, the amount of work, the complexity of trying to get that show from a standing start off with nothing at the beginning of the week onto air, very complicated. You know, it wasn't like it, wasn't like it had three sets like Blackadder you know it had everything you know lots of stock footage and everything was done at a very last minute scramble very very long hours um, and obviously sometimes quite controversial you know, having to manage the press and the, the BBC and all that sort of stuff but mainly the hours I think Let's jump forward then to uh, to Blackadder because after not the nine o'clock news, Rowan wanted his new series. He and Richard had this idea that it might be something like those wonderful old half-hour adventure shows that you used to get on children's television, The Buccaneer, and oh, I can't remember the names of them, but uh, uh, a lot of them based on Robert Louis Stevenson. Novels, oh yeah, there was a there was a film Ivan with Hope. Tony Curtis in called The Black Knight of Falworth. I remember they they based it on yeah. Uh, um, and, it, and and that in itself, I thought, I still think was a wonderful idea. Mm. But then when they wrote it, as you say, it was it was a bit of a pigsty. There were there were good bits in it, but there was an awful lot that that wasn't. Well, it, good. the truth is, I'm sure Rowan. I mean, you know, Rowan is forensic in his attitude to things and he would be the first person to admit you know actually I had a go at writing and it's not my thing you know and and actually we had to sort of sack him halfway through the first series and Richard would do it on his own and I would script edit usually at night and we'd stick the pages under Rowan's door in the morning again a terrific, no, terrific scramble to do it it's like Truffaut's day for night that's a similar situation yeah and then it started to get good because Rowan could concentrate on the performing and so on. Because in the second series, yeah. Uh, no, 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 halfway through well, the halfway first series. halfway through the first series, yeah. yeah. And, and the thing about Rowan is that he, you probably saw this occasion, I remember him directing Tom Baker behind the scenes one time. It's like, Rowan, it's not your job. Your job is not to do the writing and not to direct the other actors. Your job is to do what you do. 
um, and he's he's obviously the greatest comedian in the world in so many ways. But he finds, for example, uh, quite hard to make decisions about production things. He changes his mind a lot. Yes, I never think that Roe is a megalomaniac. He's just oh, no. so, he is so clever and understands so much about so many things to do with performance that when he's in the middle of that world, he want, he insists that every single bit of it should be right. The number of times I've been sitting next to him, rather like you and I are now, mm. we're rehearsing, and his eyes are flashing all over the place. And I don't take it personally because I know he's checking the lighting, he's checking the props, he's seeing what the costumes are like. Um, and I have an enormous amount of respect for it, although it can be irritating sometimes. One of the things I like about Roe is that I think for somebody who is as famous as he is, and that is world, you know, world-beatingly famous, he's very unegotistical. You mm. can actually say to Ron, I don't think this is really working. I think that an awful lot of people I know would not speak to you again if you said, would you mean nothing that I do is not less than perfect? I mean, it's... I always found, and I found this from the first week of rehearsals, that when I was playing with him it's like I was home and we both knew we were home we were both in a world which we both got you hardly needed to say anything at the end of the scene because we would both know what was working and what wasn't and I always felt that you, that, that you were in there in that in that world as well I think uh, if Rowan respects you which he does you I know that he thinks the world of you and I have to say, I think probably the same is true of me, is that he does he does respect what I think. He knows that I'm, uh, you know, unbending in terms of quality and that I'm not a bullshitter and that I'm not, not, not interested. Again, I'm not saying I don't have an ego at home, but at work I don't have an ego. I'm, again, sort of channeling something bigger than me. I'm the representative on earth of whatever the idea is. Uh, the guardian of it, really. Uh, on behalf of all of you, my job is for you all to look back in 30 years and say, thank God he made us do that. Whereas at the time, most people are thinking, I wish he'd shut up. I, you know, I need to get away for the weekend. Yes, I think I've, I always felt both <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so, OK, so the first series is finished. It didn't really go down very well. It was kind of a coterie success, wasn't it? There were a handful of people who thought it was pretty damn fine. Most people didn't. Michael Grade said we weren't going to have any more. You managed eventually to get a second series, although you had to promise that it would cost about 25% of what the first yeah. series cost. And then I remember... The first week of rehearsal, we had a new writer in, Ben Elton, and we had Miranda as Queen Elizabeth, and it just wasn't working. And the first, we, as you say, we did very little rehearsing. Most of it was discussing the text. But I have a very clear memory in the rehearsal rooms in North Acton of you and her prowling around the room. You both knew it was there. You both knew there was something to find. And then she suddenly played a scene... And we all looked at each other and went, yes. We really struggled to find the part, the Queenie part. In fact, Miranda was the 41st actress we auditioned, Richard and I. But again, she is of one of that very small class of actors who she works a kind of magic which I don't understand. There's no point in directing Miranda. Jeff Goldblum is a similar person. I would say Jim Broadbent is someone like that. Is they, Whatever they do is... 
it just comes from nowhere. Mm. Um, so we would have struggled because, and so would she, trying to find the, the thing. But I don't remember that thing about rehearsal. I remember thinking I was, again, so sure it was her when we auditioned her. That, you know, it, it's just the process of working through stuff that, you know, eventually go, okay, there it is, that's, that's that. With Rowan, it was very often the way he pronounced a line, you know, he'd try it all different ways, and i go, nope, that one. And then again, he'd do it again. No, 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 the one, two before that. And he'd go, what, this one, this one? Very much an engineering problem, Rowan's, Rowan's uh, performing. I was thinking um, on the way here about that second series, and we so uh, often say, oh, we got Ben Elton into right, and we got Miranda in, and that really changed it. There was actually a, light, a night of the long knives after the first series, wasn't there? I'm, I'm, looking back at it, I'm only too relieved that I, I wasn't one of those that was stabbed. Yeah, yeah. But, but virtually no one who was in the first series was in the, the second series. Rowan's character was entirely different different the whole conception of the yeah, thing yeah. At but uh, ben ben was a lot to do with that but richard found his sort of soulmate really they were the perfect chemistry and the first four scripts that came in for the second series were absolutely brilliant all of them were almost perfect and so that's why when michael grade cancelled it i said no you can't do this so we had this mad weekend richard and Rowan and i cutting out every bit of film every special effect every servant every horse every dog to cut it down to the, what they call um, strand average, you know, sort of two-sofa sitcom price. But the, the writing was where it began. It was so tight. And it was so made to be performed, you know, whereas the sort of grandeur of the first series, you know, with the sort of Hollywood in mind and all most of it on film and therefore no comic timing. I mean, basically Rowan and his friends are stage performers and they rely on an audience to tell them when they hit the spot on film that takes a lot more experience to get that timing right but the minute we were again in front of a small individual audience with a very good script it was really i remember that series being a very happy experience you know and something you think okay this is this is really good it was looking back on it a process much more like the American writer's room than what normally happens in British comedy where you get two middle-aged yeah. blokes who used to be in the forces in the Second World War uh, uh, creating something which, which you then act. I, it was an enormous present for me. I can't tell you how colossal it was. Suddenly to be around a table with half a dozen people whose comedy antennae were so well attuned but who all had a rigor with each other but but no maliciousness well i don't think the writers would have agreed especially not richard i mean the problem is if you've got stephen fry and hugh laurie and you of course and i'm a writer and um there's a half a dozen writers in the room and they're not going to put up with a with a rubbish line or a, a second rate line and richard suffered grievously from that but i think you're right it's much more like the way monty python worked or, as you say, an American writer's room where everyone is fighting for every single syllable, every line. You know, there's a famous QI stat that, do you know what the world record number of consecutive lines in The Simpsons written by one writer is? Is three. Nobody's ever got more than a sequence of three <laughs> lines on their own before somebody else's line comes in. And actually, at the end of the day, it's very hard work, but it produces the most amazing results because it's so dense, isn't it? I mean, Blackadder is at its best, is so rich 
and yet so easy to follow, so universally easy to like and understand. But the, it's a pain forte, isn't it? You know, it's an absolutely, it's a Kendall mint cake of, uh, of sitcom. Let's go back to what you were talking about earlier. I said, can we do the first half of Blackadder and then we'll, we'll, we'll mooch yeah. round we haven't got things to far. do with you. We, we don't, we, we, I think we've done... Let's say we've got to the end of the second series yeah. and, and we'll, we'll knock off the other two at the end of the chat. But I know you're really quite keen to talk about your, your road to Damascus, the, the way that you were able to transform your life, your state of mind, your relationship with your family, all those things would actually a bit more important than a half-hour sitcom. Well, I'm not necessarily keen to talk about them, but I'm, I'm happy to talk about anything at all. I'm not shy about talking about those things because I think I've learned over the years they're helpful for other people. You know, because, it, you know, when things aren't going well for you, you look out at the world and you think everyone is having a better time than me and, it, and my life is particularly difficult and unfair and it isn't like that. It's, you know, the only thing that distinguishes people who, who are still here who have survived is persistence, really, just not giving up, you know, just... And I was very fortunate because my work experience was all about that, is biting off impossibly difficult things and somehow pulling it out of the fire just at the last minute and surviving. So when it came to be my turn, it took me three years to work out that the problem wasn't everyone else, it was me, that I was the common factor in all the disasters that had happened to me and that I needed to fix me rather than fixing other people's scripts, other people's performances. And it's a metaphor for life. It's what I honestly believe, Tony, is there's, you have only one job. That's not to blow the doors off. It's fix yourself. Mm. If you fix yourself or try to, other things start to fall into place. And you can see from politics to the newspapers to people working for charities, everyone thinks their job is to fix everyone else, mm. you know, to fix world poverty, to sort, you know, change their wife to fix their children, you know, it, that's nothing to do with that. It's, it, it's you who's the problem. That's the thing. You are the, the core of your own universe, everybody, and you need to sort yourself out. That's what I think. No, How I did you do it? Did you suddenly become aware, ouch, it's me that needs fixing? Or did you go to somebody for help and they said, oi, mate, no, no. it's you who needs I did it. It was all... Very public school, you know, I can hear my father saying, yes, you know, for God's sake, John, get a grip and put your papers in that, you know, do you, you know walk it off, you know, <laughs> sake. Oh, God. Um, no, so it's a public school thing. It's, you know, you've got to get through this somehow. So mainly it was just very angry and resentful, drank too much, ate too much, smoked too much, and, uh, you know, was going round and round in the loop and um, just trying to work out what the heck had happened, really. And then, like anything else, just like a Blackadder rehearsal, you get a little a little treat. You know, every so often you get a dog chew. The universe gives you a little, oh, no, that's good, good, okay, okay. And then there's another struggle. And then, because I think the only thing the universe definitely rewards is effort. Everything else is kind of a mixture of luck and, yeah, happenstance, really. But You're being a bit vague for the first time. Oh, yeah? Um, Oh, about what, my crisis. Yeah, thing. yeah. How, what was it that you felt inside and how did you start to mend? Well, okay, so I was sacked, um, as usual, by a couple of people. 
some of whom you know very well. Um, and and I, I was very, very upset and angry because it was very unfair because, again, I'd done some things. I'd helped people out in a difficult situation and we had triumphed and won a lot of prizes and they decided I was surplus to requirements and I'd had enough of that. It happened too many times. So I kind of lost the plot and at the same time I went into my office and in those days, shows how different I was, it was covered with awards. It was every bit of wall space and no pictures, there were just awards, dozens of them. And because in commercials you can win a lot of prizes quite fast. And I looked at these things and I thought, this is my life, 50 pieces of cardboard with writing on. That's it, that's all, that's what all I amount to. What's the point of it? What's the point of being alive? What's the point of me? So it was very difficult. And the other thing is that I suddenly realised, you know, that I didn't know anything. You know, I'd spent a lot of time, as it were, not paying attention because of the pieces of cardboard, you know, collecting those. And I didn't know what an atom was or a molecule or, you know, no, no idea. And, and I, it was a shock. I'd always thought of myself as not a genius or anything, but, you know, reasonably intelligent. You know, I'd got exams and things. And I thought, I don't know anything. So A, I'm useless, and B, I don't know anything. So all my validations were not available. So I started thinking, right, well, first of all, I've got to be knowledgeable. So I first of all, when I was a commercials director, I went and bought lots of books on photography and art because I, I didn't know how to direct. I'd never had a directing lesson, and yet I seemed to be winning prizes. How, how has this happened? And then I thought, well, I need to find out, is there a reason to be alive other than he who has the most pieces of cardboard wins, you know. Um, so I started, I don't know, the thing, a big epiphany was reading um, The Agony and the Ecstasy about the life of Michelangelo, brilliant book, in which Lorenzo de' Medici basically is trying, with the help of a guy called Pico della Mirandola, trying to discover the wisdom of the ancients, and they discover Greek philosophy and um, all that kind of stuff. And I came across Pythagoras for the first time, and I thought... I know, he's the bloke who invented the triangle. That's all I knew about Pythagoras. And well, it was Baldrick who invented the triangle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In Blackadder Goes Forth. No, but carry on, sorry. That yeah, was a so, very bad interruption. So I thought I got interested. And the thing about Greek philosophy is, so ancient Athens was about the same size as Hertfordshire, similar population, you know, little tiny place. The Greeks invented, you know, everything. Geometry, so essentially maths, um, coinage, uh, philosophy, democracy, uh, drama, you know, it's just astounding. And I didn't know this, of course, and I'm 42 at the time, 42, 43, and so I go to Foyle's bookshop in London and said, <laughs> I'm quite cocky, my, my confidence arose, I thought, I'm rather smart. So I went up to the sixth floor of the classical department and said, do you have anything at all on the uh, 5th and 6th centuries BC Athens? And the sort of hippie behind the desk, you know, long hair, reading, glasses, all that, just pointed at a wall over there. It was like taller than you could stand. You need a ladder. And that entire wall was two centuries of, of Athenian um, achievements. And I thought, I had this thing called infofear. I thought if I had ten lifetimes, I couldn't even read that wall. So that then pushed the ignorance even further. It's like, now I'm terrified. I'm, I'm just, I'm never going to catch up. But anyway, so out of Pythagoras, you get into Greek philosophy and mathematics and physics, and I was on the road, and suddenly I'm like thinking for myself for the first time since I was 15. 
you know, and I'm in, become absurdly curious about everything. And I'm very lucky because I have, I'm very well paid. I'm a commercials director and going all over the world, being paid tons of money so I can buy any book I want. So eventually you start to get ideas, you know, you start to think, okay, well, this is wrong. Everything you thought about, you can see it in QI, all that general ignorance thing is what happened to me is like all the things that I thought I knew because I was a clever clogs and used to be good at quizzes at school, they're all not, not true or any partly true. And the things you actually need to know, they don't tell you at school. And they are very small in number. And they're things like, be nice to people. Don't be frightened. You know, make an effort. Have, try not to be so gloomy all the time. You know, these are, these are, these are the important things. Um, but yeah, it was like a giant, a, a giant production trying to mend a, a, an enormous wreck of something like an oil tank or a skyscraper that was lying in bits all over the ground, and gradually, piece by piece, you put it all back together, and the jigsaw produces a different shaped thing, which is me, really, I would say. And ironically, it reflected itself in your work because you created QI, mm. which, on the face of it, is the most obvious kind of quiz show ever you just get three or four people in a line and they say clever things but in fact it doesn't work out like that at all does it? well it's it's not really a quiz of course it's masquerading as a quiz because I knew I wouldn't be able to sell a documentary on how interesting the universe is because I've never done documentaries so you wouldn't be able to get that past the commissioning system so it looks like a game show but what it really is, is a kind of modified lecture. You've got this slightly exasperated, benevolent teacher who's trying to teach a class of remedial idiots a lesson, and they're mucking about and playing around with the material and all that kind of stuff. But I think you can see from it, I mean, lots of Blackadder is quite dark, you know, Spitting Image is quite dark. QI is not dark, it's very light, it's very, it's very friendly, it's very warm, comedians love coming on it, and it's a reflection of what I now think's important. I don't, I don't think it's necessary to be edgy or dark, you know. You can get all that at home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I like QI because it's, it makes you feel better, which is what I've always tried to do as a comedy producer. That, that is my mission in life, is to cheer people up, essentially. Even if it costs me a lot of misery, cheering other people up is what I like to do. And QI isn't just a show now, is it? Well, it does. We have lots of ancillary things. You know, there's a sort of sister radio show and a very successful podcast and um, all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. Let's go back to uh, parts three and part four of, uh, of Blackadder. There was another huge influence or a pair of huge influences which we haven't talked about yet, which is Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, uh, both of whom you knew previously to Blackadder, didn't you? Mm. Yeah, and not not that well, actually, but I think Stephen wrote to me when he was a student at Cambridge with a joke for Not the Nine O'Clock News, I think we used. I think he was probably very excited about that. And let's think, so we're talking about 85. Yeah, I don't think I knew them at all, at all well at that time. I started to get to know them really when Hugh and I both had kids and they were similar ages and we used to spend a lot of time on holiday but that would have been in the 90s so I got to know them really rather like you through through Blackadder yeah, yeah. I remember in the third series which is for some reason sort of my favourite of all of them um, I think it's very odd and 
I used to love working with Hugh Laurie, who again, you think I'm gloomy? I mean, Hugh's just in despair most of the time. And his wife, Jo, was just say, the weird thing about Hugh is, who's six foot two, nearly three, he said, Hugh thinks he's talentless, ugly, and also short. You think, oh, no, come on. That is a hopeless piece of uh, uh, self-analysis. But I remember saying to Hugh once, I don't understand why you're not more famous, Hugh. This is what I mean about going back to the beginning is when I'm sure about somebody, I'm right. Um, David Jason and I worked together on this show called Weekending. He was an ex-electrician from Kent, and he had this little acting job on the radio. He'd done a bit with Ronnie Barker, but not much. And I couldn't understand why aren't you world famous? You're the best, and Hugh Laurie the same. I said, you should be playing a serious part. You should be James Bond or in some major... American drama, and so it proved, you know. He is he's, terribly good doing his serious stuff, isn't he? He's very, very good. He's a, he is really a proper, proper actor. He's one of those magicians who can do, I don't know what, the, you know. I can take simple direction. I can not bump into the furniture as an actor. I can do funny voices. But w- what Hugh Laurie does as an actor, I don't understand that. You're quite right. Before he went on every week in Black Adder, I remember that we were metaphorically, as it were, waiting in the wings. And he would always say, this is the week I'm going to get found out. Everyone yeah. else is so good in this show, mm. and I'm just absolute rubbish. And just telling it to you now, it sounds like it's a bit of narcissistic indulgence, but it wasn't like that at all. It was like it was someone who, in the depths of their soul, was trying to create something which would make him as good as he believed yeah, the yeah, other people yeah. were. No, it's, it's desperate, and one felt for him. Um, but again, it's that thing where, where you need to... You need to get to the point where, when I got married, Sarah said to me, and we got to know each other, we didn't know each other very well when we got married, she said, I've never met anyone who is as different from the way you appear to the way you actually are. There's a complete divide between the two people. And the same with Hugh. You know, Hugh is regarded as this unbelievably good-looking, talented, successful, charming He's a god. He walks in a party and everyone goes, my god, who's that? And inside he's this, you know, moth-eaten worm who doesn't know, you know, is desperate and depressed. And But that's how we all felt about you. <laughs> you would, you're a very good-looking, tall guy, nice posh accent, incredibly talented, uh, able to stand up to the biggest bullies, uh, pursues his vision to the nth degree and at the end it comes out wonderful and there you are mithering around yeah I know but I wish I'd known that you know there's a thing happened to me oh must be 10 years ago that I won this lifetime award when I was 38 and uh, they didn't the committee didn't tell me I was going to win this award at BAFTA and I had to go and make a speech in front of Princess Anne I it was like I was half cut because we'd won two BAFTA awards for Blackadder I'd got my tie off, and I had to go and make the speech in front of Her Royal Highness and, you know, live on television. And somehow I managed to pull it off, and I saw this thing about ten years ago, and I thought, my God, if I'd known I was that good-looking and charming, I'd have put myself out a bit, about a bit more. You it's know? a bit late in the day, mate. It's too I late. I, know, I never thought, I didn't know, I didn't know I was that guy. Yeah. Who's that guy? He's amazing. <laughs> that doesn't shine with who I thought I was. Yeah. You know? I think that is different now. I mean, I'm not... It's no big deal, but I think I am as I appear these days. I don't feel all to a greater degree than I was. And I don't beat myself up to the same... 
degree, and nor do I try and control other people. It's much more easygoing. It's a more, uh, a more sort of floppy sort of way of going about things. Before we finish, we need to talk about the fourth Blackadder series, which was, most people think, as I understand it, was by far the best and has stayed in their minds forever and is really iconic. You were quite troubled throughout a lot of that, weren't you? Well, yeah, my personal life wasn't uh, was a bit ropey at the time because Helen Fielding, who was my sort of love of my life, gave me the boot in 1986. So the, the, the second and the third and fourth series of Blackout, I was living with that, trying to get back the person that I thought I was um, destined to be with. So whatever was going on at work was it wasn't great at home, really. I was lost. And this is the pre the pre midlife crisis, really. But there was also, wasn't there, more tension between a sort of triangle of, of of you and the performers and the writers about what should be in the show and what should. Oh yeah, the the beginning of the third series, um, Richard and Ben's agents summoned me to a sort of court of the star chamber and said, "You're not allowed to change any of our words anymore." So sorry, I'm the producer. I do. I mean. It sounds as I do what I like. I mean, that was what you had was power. The producer was a, a, somebody who was respected and, and backed up by upstairs. So I just ignored that, really. And I hope, you know, at the end of the day, I think we're all good friends now. It was difficult at the end of the fourth series. The writers and the actors were barely talking to each other because of so much, as, as, as you know. I mean, each series of Blackadder, which we made once every two years, everybody in the room had got twice as famous as they had been two years before. And they weren't used to anyone telling them what to do. Yes. Most of all me. Never a good bit of alchemy, that, yeah. is it? But at the end of the day, if you look at... Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the chemistry produced some really astonishing work, which I don't think is necessarily evident in stuff that we've done on our own, mm. to the same degree. No, I agree with that. I think the way that all, all those talents melded together... And the fact that, I think a lot of it is down to the fact that you were as ruthless as, as you were because it meant that people couldn't push something to an nth degree if it was wrong just because they had a high status. They, everyone had to, uh, had to look towards the greater good, as it were, rather than their own individual path through a particular episode. And I think that, that, did, I think that was just huge and it was a real lesson to me for, for the rest of my life. Looking back on it now, how do you feel about Blackadder? Well, it's, I mean, it's really good. I mean, I, I occasionally you catch something over somebody's shoulder and you get absorbed and you think, this is, this is really good. I remember watching one a while ago, which is a scene with you and Ron in the kitchen in the third series. And I thought the first 10 minutes of the show is like, it's absolutely pitch perfect. Absolutely everything is, every line is landing. Brilliant performances, very interesting. And then you, oh no, this is the scene where all goes wrong. Oh, this is so embarrassing. We never fix that bit of the plot, or you know, it's a badly cast actor maybe, or something. But, but also, it it, it it's a slight out of body experience because it's so long ago. It feels like it happened to somebody else. So that when you ask me these questions, I'm suddenly I'm back there, as a frightened, you know, depressed, angry, desperate kid, really trying to make the most of things. 
I do remember a lovely evening, though. It was maybe 10, 12 years ago, where purely coincidentally, you were at the Cheltenham Festival, I was, and Richard was. Oh, yeah, that was And my great. wife was. And the four of us just went out for dinner afterwards. And it was really, I think, the first time that you and Richard had kind of sat down in a relaxed way Well, we together. made it up on stage. I think we did. We sort of apologised to each other. You, yes, that's right. In yeah. front of a thousand yeah. people, and that was a very big moment. And I d definitely... It's such a relief because I genuinely love Richard Curtis. I think he's the most extraordinary force for good in the world, incredibly talented, incredibly nice guy. And not to, not to get on with him is like a, you know, it's just not right. And uh, you, we were all there in the same room and you both said you loved each other. It was a lovely moment. Mm. Yeah, it, uh, again, these, these are important things, way stations, friendships are a very important thing. Um, and it's a, it's a money, fame, power, all these things, they're a, a drugs, they're all a complete illusion, they're an irrelevance to what matters, and friendship matters, you know, and doing things properly matters, and standing up for what's right matters, these matter. Doing things properly. Yeah. That, in a way, that was the maxim of Blackadder, wasn't it? We will do this properly, we will leave and go home once we have done this properly. Well, because also you said, you know, I will not bow to somebody of higher status. Sometimes you have to, because, you know... But I, I really, I really despise people using their status to get their way because they are for only that reason, and I wouldn't stand for that as a producer. And and I think, and you're using it as a, as I say, that it's particularly acute in advertising when everybody wants to just get through Thursday the difficult meeting with the client, and I say no, I'm here so that in a quarter of a century you'll look back on this day and say I'm glad we did that. And I'm going to go on until until you give in to me. But not for me, but for on behalf of you and behalf of all of us. Before we finish, can you remember you said you'd extracted four important things that you thought were important as, as distinct from all the, the noise around us. One was be nice to each other. Oh, um, uh, that's uh, sometimes, I'm trying to remember what they were. I often say I'm agnostic. And an agnostic is somebody who's obviously ignorant, um, somebody who refuses to discuss the question of whether God exists until the terms are defined. In other words, you describe what kind of God you don't believe in, and then we can we can have a good conversation about it. But agnosticism, of which I am the only adherent, um, very small religion, only has five commandments, so it's uh, twice as easy as Christianity. And they are uh, no fear, be kind, try not to be an asshole. Um, what's the fourth one? Oh yes, do what you know to be right and cheer up for God's sake. Four of those you adhere to all of the time. <laughs> John, one final question. What's your cunning plan for the future? Uh, well, um, I've been very remiss for 30 years, slightly over 30 years. I had this, I've had a couple of epiphanies in my life. One of them was thinking of QI because I didn't think of it. It arrived through the top of my head. And another one is this idea for a series of four novels that is a, a universe that I inhabit when I want to escape from the current situation and go and see what's going on in it. So that's really what my wife thinks I should be doing next. So um, Just have to, have sit to down hurry. and write four novels. Well, 
it's something because it's like everything I've done in my work is I like to make programs I'd like to watch. Uh, and that's my thing is I try and think of what's not on television that I'd like to see. And this is this is the book I really want to read. I don't know if I'm capable of doing it because I, I'm not really, a, uh, you know, I've certainly never written a novel before. So I don't know if I can, but everything else I've done has been like that. I never did puppets before Spitting Image. I never, you know... Never worked in television before, not that I got news, so I've never written a novel. And, and you know, what the heck, you know? How hard can it be? Very. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for talking to me, mate. I love you. <laughs> you see, Tony. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at Tony underscore Robinson, and you can follow all our podcast news on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. And please, please, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my cunning cast produced by Melissa Fitzgerald and it's a Zinc Media production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.